Thank you, Austin, and good morning. Good to see you all today. This morning is the first Sunday of Lent on which we begin the long and in some ways arduous journey with Jesus to his cross. We actually started this journey a few days ago on Ash Wednesday. Some of you were able to join us for our Ash Wednesday prayer service as we started walking this road. Now, for those who maybe didn't grow up observing Lent, or maybe you're unfamiliar with this season on the church calendar, that was actually me. I didn't grow up observing this season, but the word Lent simply means spring, and this is a 40-day journey that takes us to a 40-day journey that in some ways mirrors the story that we're going to be reading today from Matthew chapter 4 of Christ's temptation in the wilderness. But this journey takes us to and properly prepares us for a celebration of the resurrection. It is in part a process of repentance a process of self-denial, coming to terms with our own mortality and sin and walking with Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem. We are calling our Lenten series this year, we're simply calling it Walking with Jesus, during which we are going to look at some stories of people who encountered Jesus in significant ways. We're going to focus primarily on stories found in the Gospel of John. We're actually not doing that today. We're beginning in Matthew chapter 4, but the, the rest of Lent will be spent in the book of John. And as we consider some of these stories of folks who encountered Jesus, who walked with Jesus, I would encourage us to consider how those encounters might inform our encounters. What might we learn about walking with Jesus? What might we learn about walking with Jesus to his death as we prepare our hearts to enter the limitless joy of his resurrection? So again, we will spend most of our time in John. Today we'll be in Matthew chapter 4, but before we read Matthew 4, I want to begin with the words from Hebrews 4, where the author of Hebrews speaks to the fact that Jesus is our great high priest, and then goes on to say this in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our great high priest is able to sympathize with our weaknesses as one who endured great temptation. In every respect, we are tempted and yet never succumbed to that temptation. This is perhaps even more remarkable than we are able to understand the, the mystery that the God of the universe, that the image of the invisible God, the word of God made flesh, that he would endure temptation. And not just temptation in name only as some sort of official rite of passage before his ministry could officially begin, though there was never really any possibility that he would give in to these tests. If there's no possibility of giving in to temptation, is it truly a temptation at all? In that great passage from Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Christ emptied himself, 
that he took on the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of humans, and as the author of Hebrews says, subjected himself to all human experience. And at times I think it can be easy for us to forget this fact that our Lord experienced what we experience. Physical pain, emotional pain and grief, he got hungry, as we'll see today. He got sleepy, experienced frustration and even anger. Laughter and joy were a part of his experience, as was sorrow. And I think this story that we're going to read in Matthew chapter 4 of Christ in the wilderness, this experience in the wilderness before his public ministry begins, shows us some more commonality that we have in our humanity with Christ. And this story is important on several levels, I think. It's obviously important theologically and in terms of the role it plays in the arc of Christ's ministry. But I also think this story, as we read it, could provide some helpful ways for us to understand and view our moments or seasons of temptation. And so I would like to simply offer a few observations about this story as we read through it. Matthew chapter 4, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. One of the first things this story reminds us of is the fact that Christ is a Savior who identifies with our human experiences, as we've mentioned briefly already today. And one of those unifying human experiences, one that every one of us will face and will face until the day we die, is the temptation to sin. If even our Lord... God himself was tempted in very real ways where the stakes were incredibly high, what would make us believe that we would somehow be beyond those dangers? That we could progress to a place where sin would no longer entice us or we could just brush that off as maybe not a big deal? In fact, this is not the only moment of temptation. Jesus himself experiences. It's the most notable, especially from a literary standpoint, I think. It's the most prolonged and perhaps one of the most intense experiences of temptation, at least that we know about from the life of Christ. But this wasn't the end of those experiences of trial and temptation that our Lord endured. Throughout his life, he had these moments we see it when he experiences tension and conflict with those outside of the, the community that had gathered around him. We also see it from within his small band of disciples. Maybe you remember that story, the, the tempting suggestion from Peter in Matthew chapter 16. After Jesus foretells his death and Peter says, nope, not on my watch. We won't let that happen to you. And Jesus responds to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. 
Or maybe we would think of another notably intense trial and temptation Jesus faced just before his death as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. These these weren't just temptations in name only, but intense spiritual experiences where the man Jesus Christ wrestles with his self-understanding, wrestles with his mission and how to go about life in this world with that mission in mind. Now remember the story that we're reading in Matthew chapter 4 comes right on the heels of the baptism of Jesus told in Matthew chapter 3 where the spirit is depicted as descending on Jesus in the form of a dove and then chapter 4 begins and the same spirit that descends on Jesus leads him into the wilderness of temptation. The spirit is not the one who does the tempting in the wilderness. And the Spirit doesn't abandon Jesus in the wilderness for this season, but the Spirit does lead Jesus into this experience. And if Jesus was tempted throughout his life, let us not forget that this is a very real issue in the life of discipleship for us as well. And it comes to all of us. No one is immune. Yes, verse 2 tells us that all of this occurs after Jesus has fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And he was obviously very hungry. And at that point, the temptation begins. And maybe you've related to that. I, I think there's some significance to that fact. Have you ever felt like the temptation to sin was unavoidable or at the very least difficult to resist? When you lacked something, we've all been hangry, right? Has there ever been a a time where that lack that you are experiencing, where that need has contributed maybe to you lashing out at somebody in anger or becoming impatient. I know it certainly has for me. And and sometimes, maybe we do become more susceptible to temptation when we experience a great need like extreme hunger or pain or failure. But one thing I would caution us with this morning as we read through this story is to recognize that Temptation to sin is not limited to those seasons of want. But it comes to everyone, and it comes in every season. It comes to the person in poverty who doesn't have enough to get food today. It comes to the person with no felt physical needs today. The one with the beautiful home and a perfectly manicured lawn without a single weed. Temptation to sin is no respecter of person. It's no respecter of season in life. And I think this is important for us to remember because the first step in developing the ability to resist temptation is being able to recognize that it's there. Being able to recognize that there is a choice to make in this moment. 
recognizing that what we are experiencing at this time is in fact temptation. And sin, living in a way that is incompatible with God's reign and rule today, is not some cosmic inevitability, but it is possible to resist. So let's read through the story and consider how Jesus combats this temptation, how he resists the enticing pull of temptation. Verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Verse 4, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the tempter arrives on the scene, the, the devil, the Satan, the accuser, comes to Jesus and presents this proposition. And I'm not all that interested today in parsing out exactly who or what this devil is or is not. What, what's the nature of this evil one? Or is this just a primitive myth that we can sort of discard? Because, of course, we have advanced beyond that sort of understanding. And we know now that the forces of sin and evil are not personal forces, but that they're just systems in our society that have gone awry. They are systems that have become corrupt and become evil. I think one of the problems with going down that road is it sort of removes all responsibility from me to be aware that there might be these influences in my life. Well, it has nothing to do with me. It's just systems that become evil. And while, yes, systems are corrupt and evil, the, the biblical witness seems to express that there's something more going on. The powers of sin and evil throughout our scriptures are depicted as being dynamic and active, not just on a societal level, but on a personal level as well. We have in accounts like this one, in Matthew chapter 4, the personification of those forces and powers of evil, but not in sort of the cartoonish depiction of a young child, or I guess a, a grown child for that matter as well, with a little red ugly creature sitting on one shoulder with a pitchfork and horns, right? Giving an enticing look. And then, of course, you've got the angel with a shining halo on the other shoulder giving the concerned and disapproving look. I don't think, obviously, we wouldn't say that we actually believe that, but in practice, I think at times we do in this way. And I don't think that vision of the Satan is helpful at all because it leads us to believe that temptation to sin is always comically obvious, and it is not. The reality is that sin is much more sinister. Temptation is veiled. It is often cloaked, even in things that seem to be good or necessary, like what we see take place in this story with Jesus. Turn these stones into loaves of bread. That seems like a rational thing to do. Maybe that food would be intended for others, or maybe for Jesus himself. If, it, if the temptation was to create food out of nothing for others, that actually seems to be a good thing. 
seems that it's even in line with a part of Christ's ministry. And think about how successful his mission might be if he just immediately and entirely fixed all of the world's problems like hunger. Or maybe the food was for himself. I mean, he was experiencing a very real, felt, immediate need. He was hungry. And as God in the flesh, he of all people should be able to satisfy his hunger. He shouldn't be expected to go without. And yet he's been without food for 40 days. And maybe it's not just hunger at this point, but maybe his actual survival hangs in the balance. So turn these stones into loaves of bread. You want to succeed in your mission, don't you? You can't do that if you die prematurely, and that's where you're at. This is actually going to be good for the cause. This will make your ministry effective. And this is the craftiness of the powers of evil at work. James puts it this way in chapter 1, verse 14. He said, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. As we read through this story, do you see how sinister, how deceptive the temptation to sin can be? And if that isn't enough, the tempter adds to it this accusatory tone, if you are the Son of God. Again, immediately before this story, in Matthew 4, Jesus is baptized. The Spirit descends on him, and the voice of the Father speaks, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And immediately after that affirmation of Christ's identity, the tempter says, if you are the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, you you deserve this. You don't deserve to be going without food in the wilderness. This is owed to you. You get to make the rules. There was a questioning of his identity. And I think this is actually often for us as well, one of the pernicious features of our temptation. The question, who are you really? Do you really believe all that stuff? We saw that in the story that we started with from Genesis that Austin read a few moments ago. Similar question is presented to these characters, Adam and Eve. Did did God really say this? Here in Matthew 4, if you are the Son of God, would God want you to die of starvation in the wilderness? And I think the point that we need to consider is when we begin to doubt the goodness of God and what he desires for us, when we see that as him withholding something from us, when we begin to doubt the goodness of God and what he desires and the life he calls us to, and when we begin to doubt our identity as children of God, 
giving in to temptation is not far behind. Because here's the thing. I, I don't think the temptation is really about the bread. It is about the bread on the surface, but I think there's something more going on. It's not just about the bread. It wasn't just about the fruit in the garden. The temptation isn't just about physical hunger, although that need was very real, but there seems to be something deeper going on. In fact, Jesus says as much when he responds by quoting Scripture. He refers back to Deuteronomy and says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He understands, well, yes, of course, the bread would satisfy my hunger in this moment, but there's something more important. Maybe even to my survival, there's something more important than just the bread. The bread is not really the thing. At least it's not the only thing. And I think that is often true of our temptation to sin as well. When we give in to temptation, the issue at stake is often not the thing on the surface. Maybe think about that in your own life. I consider it in my life. When I become maybe impatient at home or on the road driving, usually it's not about that isolated inconvenience that is going to make me 30 to 60 seconds late. I mean, that's not a big deal. I think much more often it's about something much worse in my heart, maybe about my desire to control the situation, which is much worse than just being impatient about an inconvenience. It's much more serious usually than what is revealed on the surface. Or we could think about any number of sins, jealousy and envy, what we talked about the last couple of weeks. Or sin in terms of our sexuality, usually the sex is not the thing. Or gluttony, the food is usually not the thing. There is perhaps a deeper issue at stake. Let's continue reading in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, again we see it, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So again, we find this. If you are the son of God, you can do the spectacular. And now the tempter adds to that, questioning the identity of his position as the son of God and now uses scripture to begin enticing and compelling him in these things. And how does Jesus combat that? Well, as a serious Jew, Jesus has been immersed in the scriptures from childhood. And he understands that these scriptures are an essential resource in combating not only temptation, but also a twisting of the scriptures themselves. And I think this is obviously an important resource for us as well. 
I don't think we should be able to or expect to be able to withstand serious temptation if we are not clothed in the truths our scriptures teach about our identity and about the goodness, the character of our God. We continue reading in verse 8 again. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So this final aspect of the temptation, Jesus is offered the world. Do you see the subtle powerful enticement here. This is precisely the, the thing that Jesus has come to save. Gospel John in chapter 3, which is where we will be next week, says that much. He is offered the very thing he has come for, and receiving the world, having immediately immediate power and control of the world, would be an incredible promise that he could offer the people of Israel living under Roman occupation. I mean, you want to talk about jump-starting a business plan. This is it. But the cost for this bargain is ridiculously steep. The tempter says, you, you can have all of this. I'm giving it to you. You can have exactly what you want when you want it, how you want it, and it won't cost you a thing. Except for this inconsequential thing, which is hardly even worth mentioning. You, you just have to, to worship me. It is about worship. And I think that is true of all temptation to sin. It's about the object of our worship. Maybe it seems inconsequential. Seems like it's not even a big deal. Maybe it doesn't even appear to have any lasting negative effect on our lives, at least that we can decipher. But we don't always see the complete picture. And it reveals our idolatry. Have we elevated something or someone to a place of preeminence other than God alone? Verse 11, then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And the story concludes. What we find at the end of the story is that it is possible to resist. Giving in to temptation is not a cosmic inevitability. It is possible to resist. Not easy to resist, certainly not, but it's possible. James, going back to James in chapter 4, verse 7, says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It seems like this is mirroring what has happened in Matthew chapter 4. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
So today, as we begin our journey through Lent, as we walk this slow, long journey with Jesus to the cross where we die with him so that we might be raised to life with him, we recognize that a part of our discipleship is continual dying to ourself. Where we recognize, first of all, that we are susceptible to temptation. We recognize that sin grieves the heart of God and we seek to walk this pilgrimage by submitting to God. By resisting the temptations of the evil one and being conformed into the image of the crucified one that we follow. So I want to simply leave us with a few points to consider as we reflect on this story. First of all, be aware. Be aware of temptation. That's where it begins. We will never resist the enticing pull of sin if we are not aware that temptation is a real thing. Don't go through life assuming that you are impervious to the tempter's snares. We will rarely resist temptation if we're not prepared to do so. When we aren't aware that we're even being tempted. And we don't go through life in a neutral way. We can resist. Again, it's not easy. C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. We never find out the strength, went on to say, we never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. And while the pull of temptation, while the pull of sin may be strong, we can learn to resist. And so I would encourage you today, remember your identity. Remember your identity as a child of God. That means something. It means something. It means that you are called to live in a particular way. And when you fail, remember as you practice repentance, as we are doing throughout this season, remember that God welcomes you home and restores you. And so as the author of Hebrews said, we began with it, Hebrews chapter 4, today we draw near to the throne of grace. We draw near to the throne of grace, knowing that our high priest sympathizes with us and cares for us. Amen. Would you stand today, Kevin, if you want to come? We are going to conclude our time before we share a meal by singing a song, lifting our voices together, affirming Christ's presence with us. Let me say a prayer for us as we begin. Lord Jesus, as you were led into the wilderness by the Spirit, we also affirm that you were not abandoned in the wilderness. 
And we find comfort in that fact, knowing that as we walk through the wilderness, as we experience want and need, as we endure temptation, that we have not been abandoned, but that you are walking with us. So we pray, would you abide with us today? And over the next several weeks, we need your presence. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weaknesses of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let's lift our voices together today.